0: Our Father, the psalmist said that my times are in your hands. That's a true statement, and it means all of our times. It means our conception. It means our birth. It means all the days of our lives on the earth until we take our last breath. Some of us are... uh, just getting going on the road to manhood. Some of us are halfway down the road, halfway down the trail. Some of us are pushing uh, into our 70s and 80s. And uh, the finish line is getting near. We're not sure exactly where it is, but that's in your hands. What we know is that you have given us physical life because of the gospel of Jesus Christ you have given us spiritual life and caused us to be born again to a living hope of eternal life through Christ. We thank you for sending him. We thank you that he died in our place. We thank you that through his blood and through his broken body, we have the forgiveness of our sins and we're given eternal life and we're given the assurance of that eternal life. We're grateful that you sustain us through all the ups and downs of life, you provide for us, you encourage us, you protect us, you teach us through the good and the bad and you use it all to mature us and to conform us to the image of Christ. The psalmist in 138 said, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. You have a purpose for every man in this room. Every man's purpose is a little bit different. You call us to different slots in life. You give us different gifts. You give us different work responsibilities. But whatever it is that we're doing, we do it heartily, not as unto men, but as unto you. It's the Lord Christ whom we serve. Whatever our work is, we do it unto you. We are grateful to know you. We're living in a world that's in trouble. We're living in a world of anarchy and utter rebellion to the living God. We look ahead and we wonder what's going to happen. That's in your hands. You have ways of shocking us, you have ways of surprising us. We can never quite anticipate what you're up to. That's why we have to be so careful in anticipating what we think you might do. We don't know what you will do. We just know you're running this show. Uh, Lord, you, uh, you have the power to bring about a great awakening as you did in the 1700s and again in the 1800s. Sometimes you give nations over. We don't know. But that's really not in our court, that's in your court. We simply trust you day by day with our lives. We trust you to be faithful for the next 12 hours. That's about all we can really manage It's 12 hours at a time. Jesus said each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't worry about tomorrow. You've given us today so we trust your faithfulness for today. You've gotten us through the day thus far. We've got a few more hours left, then we'll go to sleep. Help us to sleep tonight. Help us to sleep. Help us to rest, for you give to your beloved even in their sleep. And then we'll get up in the morning, and there'll be a FedEx truck waiting for us, full of your mercy, to get us through tomorrow. Now, instruct us and teach us tonight. We're we're looking at some critical stuff. We're really asking for wisdom to walk as wise men. We can't afford to be unwise in these days. Keep us close to you and your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So tonight, we are in the next uh, episode, if you will, of our study, what we're calling landmines. Our our, our key text has been Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Now, there's no doubt the days are evil, you just need to... Get on the internet and check out what's happening in the nation, what's happening in the world, and it's evil. He says, be careful how you walk. Why is that? Because to just briefly summarize, when, when a man gets serious about following Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. 1 Peter 5, your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Because you love Christ, you have an enemy who hates you, and he is going to try and trip you up, and he's going to try and ambush you, and he's going to try and get you off course, and get your eyes off Christ and his wisdom, and take these uh, cutoffs, these turnoffs that uh, will destroy you. And we've all done it. So, we're learning to uh, look for the tripwires and look for the ambushes, and we're learning to walk as wise men. There are landmines out there. Tonight, we want to look at the landmine um, of rejecting the authority of Christ in Scripture. Now, you say, well, man, Steve, that's pretty basic. Absolutely, it's basic, but it's a huge landmine. The landmine of rejecting the authority of Christ in Scripture. It's a particular landmine for those... You say, well, that's a landmine for those outside the church. Yeah, well, they've already rejected the authority of Christ in Scripture. But it is a particularly subtle landmine for those who are in the church and those who are walking with Christ and those who are following Christ. There's always the temptation. There's always the uh, faint to not trust God and to not trust His Word, but to um, but to trust another authority, and this is very subtle. I want to give you two uh, passages tonight as we start. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to uh, Matthew twenty-eight, verse eighteen. And I, as we're going to Matthew 28, I want to, we're going to be talking about the authority of Christ and the authority of Scripture. Now, I, this is an incredibly important topic. I, I, um, I have a little booklet here, it, how many pages does it run? It runs 94 pages. I cannot recommend this book highly enough to you. It's called Authority, just Authority, by Martin Lloyd-Jones. It, he, he gave some addresses in 1957, three addresses to um, the International Fellowship of Evangelical Students. Uh, a, a bunch of… Um, Uh, ministries that ministered to college students back in 1957. Now, when you read this, you'd think he was speaking today. Lloyd-Lloyd Jones, in this little booklet, and these were his addresses, and they just put them all together in a little booklet. I've read this thing so many times, I can't tell you. I've got nine of them on my shelf right now, and I keep them, and I'm always passing them out, because... Christians are always struggling with the authority of Scripture, always in the authority of Christ. Uh, He breaks this down into three sections, the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of the Scriptures, and the authority of the Holy Spirit. This is the tightest thing I've ever read, on the authority of Christ and the authority of the Word of God, which is the Word of Christ. talks about the authority of the Old Testament, talks about the authority of the New Testament, how it was recognized, how it was accepted, why we take the writings of Paul as Scripture, it's just tight, it's just full of scripture. And it is so relevant, it is so relevant. In here, he talks about the attacks on Genesis 1, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But remember, this is 1957, he talks about that, but he says, now you have to understand that the next attacks will come on Genesis 2 and 3. Well, who's in Genesis 2 and 3? Adam and Eve. And what's going to happen is there are going to be attacks on the fact that Adam and Eve really didn't exist and it will come from within the evangelical camp from those who name the name of Christ. So this week, I'm reading uh, reading a review of a new commentary out on Genesis by two evangelical scholars who say that Adam and Eve didn't exist. I mean, this guy's… Lloyd-Jones was prophetic. He saw it coming. So I'm also reading What Happened in the Garden, which is um, written by the Master's Seminary faculty out in California, and it's a response to evangelicals who say that Adam was not a historical figure. Now, this is all, this is all uh, a landmine in regard to rejecting the authority of Christ and His Word. So this is very real stuff, and this is being taught in Christian colleges, and this is being taught in Christian seminaries. So we go to Matthew 28, and as we go to Matthew 28 and we read these words, ask yourself if you really believe these words. Verse 19, and this is after the the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, Uh, let's start at 16. Uh, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Why were there eleven disciples? Because Judas had betrayed Christ. And Paul, who would be the twelfth, had not been called yet, had not been converted yet. That would happen in Acts, what, nine. Okay? When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He didn't say some authority. This is a foundational statement. All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means he's the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate authority in heaven. He's the ultimate authority on earth. He's the authority over all things. He created all things. Nothing came into being except through him. He created science. He owned science. He made science. He made you. Whatever you study in science came from his mind. Okay. He made government. He established government. All authority comes from him. If you go back a few pages, he's looking, uh, he's on, on trial, and he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to determine whether you live or die? And he looked that sucker right in the eye and said, you'd have no authority unless it came to you from above unless I gave it to you. And from then on, Pilate was trying to help him out a little bit and cover his own tail. Because Pilate was afraid, and he should have been afraid. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now watch this. Teaching them to command teaching them to observe all that i commanded you why because it's authoritative for life and lo i am with you always even into the into the age even to the end of all the days of the earth i am with you so all authority belongs to christ and to his word then flip over to john 8 verse 31 And in John 8, these are familiar words. So Jesus was saying, we're in 831, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, now watch this, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So we have just looked at two passages. Now let me give you two principles. And these two principles come right out of John eight thirty one, what we just read. And again, let's read it again, just to kind of let it sink. If you continue in my word, by the way, which we just saw is authoritative, then you are truly disciples of mine. And if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So here are the two principles. And I basically just stated the first one. If you continue in the Word, then you are His disciples. And you will experience freedom. True freedom. Now, now the second principle is just the flip side of this, if you turn it over. And I I would describe it this way. If you depart from His Word and the authority of his word, then you are deceived and you will experience bondage instead of freedom. Let me say that again. If you depart from his word, which is authoritative, then you are deceived, you've been deceived, and you will experience bondage instead of freedom. David Wells is a tremendous biblical scholar and thinker. He's uh, got to be in his late 70s. He is—he uh, was a, a professor at, at Gordon-Conwell Seminary in New England, a solid, just solid. Anything he has written, I've tried to read. Uh, he is uh, a man who calls the church back to the authority of Scripture. Uh, Pretty much all of his books do that. He's written No Place for Truth. He's written God in the Wasteland. He's written Losing Our Virtue. He's written Above All Earthly Powers. It's a great title. He's written The Courage to be Protestant. (laughs) And he's written God in the Whirlwind. Any of those are a feast on the authority of God and how his authority applies to our age and to our personal lives. I came across an interview that was done with him, and he was asked three questions. I'd like to just uh, read the first two and give you his responses. Because it's all about, in fact, the title of this is Thinking Biblically About Authority. Jesus said, all authority has been given to me but you see there is great deception in our world and there is great deception among Christians about authority because we're we're constantly hammered with wrong messages about what really is authoritative in our day and age so the first question pertains to the culture in which we're living All right? He's going to analyze it. So the first question to Wells, if someone sat down and read through some of your major books, what are a few lessons they would learn about how people in the West view the idea of authority? Now listen carefully here, if you would. All right? Think about your kids. Think about your grandkids, what they're steeped in, what they're told in school. All right? Here's what he says. What is striking about our situation today is that for so many people, there is nothing out there that can legitimately validate any action or belief. That's staggering. There is simply nothing there that makes anything right. Or to put it differently, we are building a brilliant and complex civilization, but it all rests on a vacuum. This does, this does not mean, of course, that it is now impossible for the state to make laws, rules, and regulations. To the contrary, we are now drowning in them, and we are. But what this vacuum means is that nothing in life ever has any ultimate authorization. It has not always been like this. Beneath other civilizations, and even in our own past, it was believed that there was an authority in life and this, of course, is at the heart of Christian faith. It is God who supremely validates beliefs and the use of power, or he does not do so. This is where the fine line between good and evil lies. But good and evil are now abstractions in our contemporary world. They have become irrelevant to the living of life. As we have come into our post moment, then we find that there is no longer a narrative to life. There are only our personal stories. There is no overarching meaning to it. There are just our private moments when something becomes real to us. There is no truth, capital T. There are only truths, plural. There are no ultimate rights and wrongs, there are just things with which we are comfortable or uncomfortable. We now live in a psychological world, not a moral world, and certainly not one where moral reality is defined by the holiness of God. We are alone now in the dark night of relativism, where one opinion cannot be said to be true while another is not. If one view is privately meaningful, it cannot be negated by a contrary view. The Oxford Dictionaries designated the word post-truth as the word of the year for 2016, or after-truth. Post-truth accepts the fact that a private disposition can legitimately trump an objective fact. Now, we're watching that in our culture. This explains our culture and where we are. It explains our judicial system. It explains everything. In this cultural environment in which we're living, raising our kids and grandkids, then all authority withers. First, any appeal to any kind of authority is unacceptable because there is nothing there to validate that appeal. Second, it therefore follows that those who appeal to an authority must be doing so out of self-serving motives. Their appeal is simply a way to manipulate others and serve their own private agendas. So you see, that's why if you hold to a particularly biblical principle, you will be called a hater. Because there must be hate in your heart for you to say something like that. You get it. Now, second question to Wells. What are some positive lessons you hope church leaders would take away from your work about the good use of authority? This is brief. It's two paragraphs. In our culture, authority is resisted because it is seen as limiting personal options. It is seen to curtail individual autonomy and freedom. When autonomy to think and do and say what we want is threatened, then our very self is endangered. This is what many think in our upside-down world. The biblical view is just the opposite. The freedom that lives by defying authority, especially God's authority, is actually revealing in its own inner captivity. That freedom is really the captive to self-interest, and that is a cruel captivity. Did you follow that? They think by rebellion to God and his authority, they are free but all that is doing is revealing their own inner captivity and it's the inner captivity to self and to self-interest and that is a cruel captivity now i'd like to give you two examples give you two passages Two principles. Now let me give you uh, two examples. This is under the heading uh, of, uh, of the authority of Christ in the Scripture. The authority of Christ. All authority has been given to me. Uh, because all authority has been given to Christ, his word is authoritative. Uh This is why he takes pains, Lloyd Jones does in authority, to talk about the authority of the Old Testament. Uh, If you remember, the Pharisees appealed to Moses, he was their authority. Jesus said in John 5, If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. (laughs) I love that. Every page of the Old Testament is about Jesus. You really? Well, they got all that all that stuff in the temple and all those sacrifices and those birds and all that stuff yeah that's all about jesus and we don't have to do that anymore because of what jesus did in the new testament he fulfilled the law in every point so that we wouldn't have to ah but what about the new testament how'd they figure out what books go in the new testament No, that's apostolic authority because jesus gave a certain authority to apostles that he gave to no one else and it wasn't handed down from generation to generation. And the test of whether something was accepted in the canon of the New Testament, it was either written by an apostle or sanctioned by an apostle. Whit Jones will help you with this, a little book of authority. It's better than watching the world baseball tournament. (laughs) It's better than watching ESPN. It's better than watching Fox News for 12 hours. You know, you could get through this in a week if you just took a little chunk here and there and, just, and it would bolster your faith, you see. Uh, let me give you two examples of the uh, crisis within evangelical Christianity over the authority of Christ and the authority of his word. Inside the church... Um, the first example I want to give you is Lint L-E-N-T now most of you guys think it's (laughs) L-I-N-T now I was raised in evangelical Bible churches and the only Lint I ever knew of is when my mom would put a roller on my back of my little suit before I went to Sunday school to get the L-I-N-T off I never heard of Lent in my life, although I went to a Bible teaching church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. I mean, I've been in church my whole life, never heard of Lent until, you know, fairly recently. You know why I never heard of Lent? It's not in the Bible. But I'm fascinated how many I've seen among evangelical Christians a kind of an interest and a pull and an emphasis and a lot of writing about the observance of Lent. I read an article this week on the blog of a large church in California, Evangelical Church. I've spoken there before. And this article was, Five Five Reasons My Family Observes Lent. Uh, Not one passage of Scripture was cited. Now he had some principles that were biblical principles. But he never established why he was observing the concept of Lent. He never defined Lent. He just assumed that Lent was something that Christians should do. But Lent is something that evangelical Christians historically have not done. But you see, we're being pulled. I think of an evangelical church not far from here that has had a rich tradition in the Scriptures. Um, Went there a few years ago, and I thought I'd walked into the wrong church. It was dark, and there were more candles there than at the birthday party of a 150-year-old man. It was dark, and everywhere I looked, there were candles. I thought, what the heck? They did not pay the light bill? What's going on here? Well, what's happened is, I began to realize they have been pulled into... this this movement that, um, quite frankly, is is all based around um, a view of worship that adds to the Scriptures. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about a book called The Shack. That's my second example. Lint adds to the scriptures and I'm going to show you in a minute that the book and the movie the shack take away from the scriptures okay so this if this is your favorite book <laughs> let's see how teachable you are tonight now, a lot of Christians love this book we'll get to it in a minute let's talk about Lent um, Thought Benny Hinn walked in the room for a minute. That thing started to fall over. Little Benny Hinn joke there. Maybe we'll edit that. Maybe we won't. We'll see. Um. So, Lint. This is from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. Walter Elwell is the uh, editor. Evangelical scholars write on different theological topics, give you little snippets, little definitions. So I looked up Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of penitence and prayer which begins on Ash Wednesday and prepares for the feast of Easter. You ever heard the word Ash Wednesday in scripture? No. It is a form of retreat for Christians preparing to celebrate the Paschal Mystery. It, becomes a for, it became a 40-day retreat during the 7th century to coincide, to coincide with the 40 days spent by Christ in the desert before this Lent usually lasted only a week before the 7th century. Every Friday of Lent is a day of abstinence. Fasting probably originated from the custom of fasting by those who were expecting to be baptized after being catechized. The third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent refer to the process of preparing for baptism. What? Now, just stay with me here. Let's go back to Matthew 28. Verse 18. And see, so you get got Christians being pulled into this. And some of them, this is very important to them. And okay. All I'm trying to say is, be careful of adding the Scripture. Be careful of putting this on other Christians. Because here's what Jesus said in Matthew 28. This is known as the Great Commission. All right? 28-18, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. The root idea of the Great Commission is to make disciples. Not everyone goes. The idea is, as you were going, and he was sending the apostles out. Did he not send them out to different places? They were apostles. They were were the sent ones. They were sent out. Paul did his missionary journeys. You know, Thomas probably went to India. You, You know, anyway. All right. He was sending them out they were to preach the gospel and then they would establish churches and they would make disciples followers of Christ okay go therefore and make disciples of all the nations now he may send you just to Plano Texas or to Arlington or to you know Muskogee Oklahoma wherever you are what's your job to make disciples you got a wife you got kids make disciples. Just in your own home. You see? This is for all of us. Okay. 19. Go therefore make disciples of all the nations. Because where you live is part of the nations. Okay? Not everybody goes to India. Now watch this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, Now what he meant was that you baptize them after they've done their catechisms, after they've done uh, what is it, and then their catechumens, and then at, and then no, that's not what he said. That's what this says, which was invented in the seventh century. Go therefore, make the disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, baptism is the first step of discipleship. It was it's the public it was the public testimony. Baptism is not necessary to be saved. Paul said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. There are certain Christians who, uh, Christian people, Christian denominations, Church of Christ, who believe you must be baptized to be saved. But Christ, Paul said, Paul did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. You see? You don't have to be baptized to be saved. The thief on the cross was not baptized. So, but after you've received Christ, Baptism is a first step. It's a public demonstration. A lot of churches have altar calls. You go forward. Well, historically, you didn't go forward. That didn't happen until Charles Finney came along in the 1800s. Your public testimony was that you were baptized. I remember Peninsula Bible Church in the 1960s and 70s, my old pastor Ray Stedman and Dave Roper had the college ministry at Stanford. They had these guys to Christ at Stanford. And then... They'd walk them right over to the fountain, they'd baptize them. Strip off your shirt, take, you know, most of them wear cutoffs anyway, it's California. And you'd get in the fountain, you'd baptize them. in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy, everybody standing around, you know, smoking joints. And then what the heck's going on there? That was your public testimony that you're following Christ. That's how it used to be. And it's still the public testimony. Okay? Now look at verse 20: teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. What I'm reading here about Lent, he didn't command any of it. It's made up by men. It's tradition. Yet I see Christians, evangelical Christians, being pulled into this whole observance of Lent. Really? Why don't you do this? Why don't you observe what he commanded you? And what he commanded you is not nearly as complex as this bureaucracy called went. This is the work of man. This is the work of a... um, This is the work of a heretical church. This is the work of Roman Catholicism. That is works-based. And some people get upset when I say that, but... The thing about, uh, I, I remember when I was at a meeting, we were, uh, of speakers, guys who spoke for Promise Keepers. And we, a bunch of guys in there. And uh, guys from different camps in the evangelical world. We didn't agree on everything. I mean, on the fundamentals we agreed. But it, something was announced that, uh, yeah, they were still pursuing having a Roman Catholic priest. Teach a promise keepers, and right there, you could feel the line go right through the middle of the room. Some guy said, "Oh, wow, that's cool." What? What? And then an interesting discussion ensued. (laughs) All around the authority of Scripture, you see. Um. I I would, I mean, there's Catholic people who know the Lord and love the Lord and trust in him as their Savior. They don't trust in Mary. They don't trust in the church. They trust in Jesus. You see? I've met them. And one of the fascinating things that happens is when you hand a teachable Roman Catholic a Bible and they start reading it and watch their eyes go open See, I tried a church in California, probably 30% of those folks were former Roman Catholics. So, you see, we had that discussion in that room, and uh, the problem is Roman Catholicism believes you're justified not by faith, not by grace, but you're justified by works. There's this thing, they had a, when Martin Luther, coming up in 500 years of the Reformation, Martin Luther, Roman Catholic priest, read the Scriptures, and he was trying to get peace with God. He couldn't get peace with God, and then he was was studying the Scripture. He found out that the just shall live by faith, that, you see, my faith is in the Son of God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. He died for me in my place. He took my sin upon him. You see, that's the God. He discovered that, and he started preaching it. And it started spreading through the whole world because of Gutenberg's printing press and in the sovereignty and providence of God. It went everywhere. It was a reformation. And Luther's life was on the line. I think I mentioned this last week. And uh, what happened was uh, they had a council, the Roman Catholics did, and men like Bellarmine and some of the other ones, and they they took on Luther, and they said, no, we're justified by works. The Roman Catholic Church has never repudiated that. Okay. So, now it's interesting, this article on Lent, and and by the way, in that meeting, all these things were brought up, and they did not move ahead. Um, Because you see, when a Roman Catholic priest it was said of Amaziah in the Old Testament, he loved the Lord, but not with a whole heart. You see. If you love the Lord with a whole heart, you don't go to Mary and ask for forgiveness of sins. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, period. Mary is a sinner, was a sinner. She called on God, her Savior, her Redeemer, the Son who was born by Her virgin birth. She was stunned when that angel appeared to her. Stunned. Holy Spirit shall come upon you. You will have a child. 15, 16-year-old girl. How can this be? Because I'm a virgin. Did I tell you about my professor in college who the first day tried to undermine Christianity philosophy class? Some of you are Christians. You believe in the virgin birth. That word virgin doesn't even mean virgin. It means young woman of marriageable age. I went, really? I'd never been to seminary. I didn't know Greek. When I went to seminary years later, it's one of the first words I ever looked up when I got the Greek I looked up that word virgin. And it can mean, it has two meanings it can mean virgin, or it can mean young woman of marriageable age. Well, how do you tell which is which? By context. A lot of our words are the same thing. Context determines meaning. So the angel appears to Mary. You're going to have a child oh i've never known a man how can this be since i'm a young woman of marriageable age that's not what she meant how can i have a baby i've never had sexual intercourse with a man how can i have a baby you didn't say how can i have a baby since i'm a young woman of marriageable age no i'm a virgin you see but now there's all of this stuff that's been developed in regard to mary where, in the Roman Catholic Church, where she's co-redemptress with Christ. That's not in Scripture. You see? But it's interesting you see evangelicals being pulled this way. Just stick with Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Stick with Scripture. And in this article on Lent, he hasn't quoted Scripture yet. He gets down, and the next paragraph says, Penitential works are very important during Lent. These include not only abstinence and fasting, but also prayers and charitable works. Ash Wednesday is one of the greatest days of penitence. So on the way over here, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking through, and I thought, you know what? I got to have a good definition of penitence, and I, but I was driving. I didn't want to pull out a book, so I, I said, Siri. I did. What is the definition of penitence? And I wait for a few minutes and circling and circling and says, the definition of penis is a male sexual organ. I said, no, no, no. That's what it said. That's what it came back. I looked around to see if anybody in the other cars heard me. That really happened. And then and then I tried it again, and they said the definition of repentance, no, not repentance, I want penitence. And the definition came out is a self-discipline against oneself or punishment because of sins you have done. Second definition was uh, Confession to a priest for absolution from the priest for forgiveness of your sins. There's one high priest. His name is Jesus. You see, that's all works. (laughs) Ash Ash Wednesday is one of the greatest days of penitence. Vatican Council II in the Constitution of the Sacred Liturgy. The what? Describes how penitence will lead one closer to God. Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's false teaching. Why don't you just stick with observe all that I commended you? Lent is about uh, depriving yourself of something. Uh, Here's my suggestion. If you want to deprive yourself of something during Lent, deprive yourself of Lent. (laughs) Lent. How's that? Does that sound all right? Why don't you go with that? Uh, Is there a place for fasting in the Scripture? Yeah, I don't have much time to spend on this. Uh, Donald Whitney has written an excellent... I I mentioned his book last week on the disciplines of the Christian life. Jesus talked about fasting. He talked about it in Matthew 6. Uh, But uh, in Matthew 6, Jesus said when you fast... Don't let everybody know. Make it private. You see? So, in other words, when you fast, you don't need to put charcoal on your forehead. If you want to fast, fast. But just don't public. It. It's between you and the Lord. Well, why would you fast? Well, there are different reasons people fast. Um, uh, Whitney says, when should you fast? Times of special need. Hey, in Scripture, when people are in crisis, they fasted. When there's a big-time crisis, you can fast. What does it mean to fast? It means that you don't eat the normal meal and you just say, Lord, I'm so desperate and I'm in such need of you that I want to spend this time in prayer and ask you to work on my behalf, and I am utterly dependent upon you. When you are utterly desperate, uh, you have a a, a son or a daughter who's away from the Lord, and there's such a burden. I've had times in my life where I would... I would fast a lunch on a certain day and just pray for one of my kids. You see? And then about 2.30, I start getting a headache, and I hallucinate, so I get muscle milk, and I take a couple of those because i got to get through the day. You have to fast all day long. It's just taking time and say, Lord, I'm dependent. And you're you're not manipulating God. If you are, that's not what you should be doing. You're just saying, Lord, I need you. I need your help. I'm asking you to come through in whatever way you deem is right. I know what I would like to see, but, Lord, you know what is best. Okay. There are times to fast, but it's not a system that Jesus instituted that we call Lent that so many evangelicals are pursuing. Now let's talk about the shack. See, Lent adds to Scripture. Let's talk about the shack. Why do I want to talk about the shack? Well, because there's a movie out on the book, The Shack. Uh, I'm grateful for Tim Challey, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S. Tim Challies is a pastor. He has a website. He has a blog, Challies, C-H-A-L-L-I-E-S.com. I I check that every day because he does book reviews, He's aware, he has just really excellent articles. This guy is a phenomenal reader and processor and theologian. He's got great stuff. It's kind of a clearinghouse of great information, both biblical and, you know, current events. I check it a lot. He recently did, he did a, uh, he, he did a movie review. Actually, it wasn't a movie review because he hasn't seen the movie. But he did an article on why he's not going to see the movie The Shack. And then, right after that, he came out with this review called, What Does The Shack Really Teach? Now, The Shack is one of the best-selling books in modern-day America, Christian books, quote, unquote, Christian. But this guy, Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, The Shack is a novel, if you're not aware of it, not one I'd recommend at all. at all but it's a quote-unquote Christian novel Uh, a lot of people love it a lot of people say it's really off base and it's been kinda murky and there's been a lot of speculation about the doctrine he teaches well now just recently he's come out with a book on what he believes doctrinally and the book is called lies we believe about God he reveals himself Now, I don't have time to read everything. Chalice is very fair. He read the book, went through every chapter. He he tries to to let Paul Young speak in his own terms. Uh, He's not putting words in his mouth. So I I don't have time to give you the chapter-by-chapter synopsis, but I want to say this to you. This man is a heretic. Now, I'm going to read some paragraphs from... And and if this offends you, if you really like the shack, I would challenge you to listen, and I would challenge you to be like the believers at Berea who were more honorable than those at Thessalonica who searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. You have to test the spirits. This is is what happens among charismatic Christians. I, I was raised in Pentecostalism. Been around it all of my life until my early twenties. I've been around. I've seen. I've seen just about everything in Pentecostalism and the Charismatic movement. Uh, the problem with those in the Charismatic movement is that they're so taken with the supernatural they tend not to test the spirits according to the Word of God, and they can be easily deceived by demons. <laughs> I have family members in that movement who love love Christ with all their hearts, who love the Word of God. But there is danger when you don't test what happens according to the Scriptures to see if it fits. You see? Let's talk about the shack now. And I'm going to quote Chalice. The shack has sold 20 million copies and along the way generated at least 20 million conversations. Many of these have been attempts to discern the fact behind the fiction, to interpret what Paul Paul Young really means, to teach through his story, through his novel. Uh, Some have read it as an expression of Christian orthodoxy. Others have read it as rank heresy. In the end, only Young knows what he really believes. At least that was the case until the release of his new book, Lies We Believe About God. In this book, he tells what he believes about sin, religion, hell, substitution, that Christ died in our place. Submission, salvation, and a number of other issues that cut to the very heart of the Christian faith. He does this by addressing a series of 28 lies people believe, specifically evangelical people. Evangelicals believe 28 lies. These lies are all scriptural. Uh, He says, in this section, I provide a brief overview of the most important chapters and lies we believe about God. As much as possible, I allow Young to speak in his own words. And then he goes through each chapter. Here's what he says about the atonement. Here's what he says about God. Here's what he says about, by the way, he calls God a cosmic child abuser for sending his son to die on the cross. That is abhorrent that God would do such a thing. Um, And again, I can't go through all that. But let me say this. Through 28 chapters, Young systematically discusses and denies tenet after tenet of the historic Christian faith. He denies human depravity. That means that all men are sinners. Human depravity doesn't mean we're as depraved as we can mean. It just, human depravity means that sin touches every aspect of our existence and being spirit, soul, and body. Everything has been touched by sin. Everything. You see. We're dead in our trespasses instead. Ephesians 2 1. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah. Can the leopard change his spots? Can the Ethiopian change the color of his skin? Then you can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It doesn't mean people can't do good things, be civil and polite. But in terms of good that is acceptable to God, we're sinners. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. This is basic Bible. Okay. He denies tenet after tenet of the historic Christian faith. He denies human depravity and divine sovereignty. He denies that God is sovereign. Yet in Psalm 103 says his throne is in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. He says, that's not true. <clears throat> okay. So where's the authority of Scripture? It doesn't exist for him. To be sovereign is to be in absolute control over all things. In Daniel 2, God said he raises up kings and he sets them down. Proverbs twenty-one one king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. God controls every human heart. He kept one leader who thought Abraham's wife was his sister from having sexual intercourse with her, and he kept the man from sin because God is sovereign over all things and all hearts. He says God is not sovereign. The Bible says God is sovereign. God claims to be sovereign. He insists that all humanity has been or will be saved by the gospel. That's universalism. That hell does not exist. That God merely submitted to the cross that any God who would punish his son as, as a substitute is abhorrent and the very notion of appeasement is unworthy of God. He denies that sin separates us from God and that death represents the end of our opportunity to respond to his offer of divine grace. As Thomas Jefferson famously excised from his Bible all those passages he considered unbearable, Young has gutted the Christian faith of anything he considers repugnant. What remains bears only a passing resemblance to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He's gutted the Bible. Now that Young has described what he believes, his fans would do well to return to the shack, for he has settled many of the debates. Does the shack teach universalism? Absolutely. Does it, there's no question now. People are wondering. Now we know what the guy believes. So does it teach? It looks like it teaches universalism. Absolutely. Does it encourage people to turn to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith? Is it meant to compel people to come to a deeper confidence in the Bible? Is it a book that will persuade people to join and serve a local church? No, no, and no. Years ago when I reviewed The Shack, I said, despite the amount of poor theology, my greatest concern is probably this one. The book has a quietly subversive quality to it. Young seems set on undermining Orthodox Christianity. And then Charlie says, seems set. Now we know he is set. He is set on revoking and replacing the very pillars of the Christian faith. Conclusion from Chalice. Why am I going into this? You know how big this book is? You know how popular it is? There's people in your family that love this book. It's like Jesus calling. Right behind the shack is Jesus calling. And if you really want to hear the voice of Jesus, Sarah Young says, Jesus will speak to you and you can write it down. And in her book, she writes it down and it's the words of Jesus. And why is it that Jesus sounds like a 60 year old post menopausal woman? (laughs) He never sounds like that in Scripture. Well, that's what she is, and that's not from Jesus. But you see, and then, oh, well, it's not Scripture. Wait a minute, you just said it's from Jesus. See, so you're undermining Scripture. And all these Christians, all these, reading the reading it, I go to Christian bookstores, I can't believe they're carrying this stuff. Christian publishers are publishing this stuff. You're saying that Scripture is not sufficient. You're adding to Scripture. This book has authority. Oh, I really want to hear a word from the Lord. Okay, look at it. Oh, I want a fresh word. Well, read something you didn't read yesterday. (laughs) Or meditate on something you did read yesterday because you're going to see something else in that text you didn't see yesterday because you can never find all the nuggets in the Word of God if you live a thousand years. Okay. Now that I've read lies we believe about God, Jolly says, from cover to cover, one of its small statements seems to take on outside an outsized significance. Young says, to understand who God really is, you begin by looking at yourself. Dear Jesus, help us. That's what you get from Oprah. That's what you get from psychology. Well, you got a problem, you got a difficulty, you got a hardship. got I, I, I tell you story. I did. Years ago, I was on a plane. and I'm in the middle seat. It's so cr- I have a book. I can't read my book because the lady behind me has her seat back into my throat. This is an absolutely true story. A little American Eagle flight, in a minute like this. And I got a book, and I, I literally can't read my book because she's all the way back. So I started reading her book. This is absolutely true. I'm just looking over and I'm reading her book. I couldn't do a thing, I couldn't move, I couldn't breathe. So I'm reading her book and it was some psychologist, didn't get the opening couple of pages. I could tell the psychologist, he's setting the hook. Do you have this problem, you have this problem, you have this problem, you have, you have this, do you deal with this, do you have a rebellious kid, do you have this? Turn the page, I'm just following along. He's setting it up, he's, gonna, he's coming in for the juggler, he's got to set the hook. You got all these problems, he's bringing in everybody. Then what's the answer? Turn the page, you must look deep inside what? Yourself. Looking inside yourself is like going swimming in a septic tank. There's nothing there. You don't look inside. You look up. You look up to the Lord Jesus Christ. He who knew no sin became sin. To understand who God really is, you begin by looking at yourself since you were made in God's image. Well, that's true. We're made in God's image, but you have Genesis and the fall and sin. The man who wrote these words has exposed his own approach for his God is obviously and unashamedly fabricated in the image of Paul Young. Now, do you remember what Wells said? Wells said that modern day people, their freedom is captive to their own self-interest and not the word of Christ. That's the shack. That's the shack. So this is a special time. We're coming up on Easter. So 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 what do we do? And and what should we do? Because Jesus, see, the gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. Paul said, and I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, and then he appeared to the 12, and then he appeared to over 500 at one time. Did you notice that it said that Christ died for our sins? That's the substitutionary atonement that he says is child abuse, that God would put his son on the cross. That's the heart of the gospel, that Jesus died in my place. He's indicting God for that. So then, what, what, how do we remember? So, so, so then, what, what, how do I do all that Jesus commanded? How do I te- what do I teach my kids? my grandkids about all that Jesus commanded at this time of year. Well, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 real quick. Yeah, do we put charcoal on our forehead? Do we practice, you know, Fridays not eating cheeseburgers? Do we I mean, what do we do? Huh? 1 Corinthians 11:23. Now look at this. Look at this, Paul says, "For I received from the Lord." Did you get that? This is the Apostle Paul. Well, you know, Paul. I mean, we don't know if this was Paul. This, this is not from Jesus. This is Paul. He says, "For I received from the Lord." He's an apostle. He got this straight from Jesus. All right, First Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. Now watch this: that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what should I do at Easter? Why don't you do that? Jesus said, this do in remembrance of me. He didn't say put charcoal on your forehead. He didn't say fast. He didn't say every other Friday eat a kale salad. He didn't say it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. This bread, take a piece of bread. You got your kids? Take a rich cracker. You're on a camping trip somewhere? Do what Jesus said. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what am I supposed to do at Easter? I'm supposed to remember what he did. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He wants us to remember what he did. He doesn't want us to try and earn forgiveness. He wants us to remember that he paid it all for us with his body and with his blood. 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And until he returns and he's coming back, this is what we do. We observe what he commanded and what he taught. When all else fails, read the directions. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Now, it's easy to look at others But as I drive home tonight, I need to look at myself and ask myself, where am I circumventing the authority of your word? What does your word say that I am not paying attention to? What does your word say that I'm trying to get around? Uh, You you love us, and you gave us this book. Everybody in the world is under authority. We want to be under your authority. We want to get under your authority. We want to get under the blood. We want to submit. Even when we don't get what you're doing, we want to bow. And as hard as may be, we want to say, not my will. But thine be done, we trust you with our lives in Jesus name we pray amen, amen.